There's so much health advice floating around, online, among friends. But who can you really trust? Trust the experts. Listen to the world's brightest medical minds, our very own Cleveland Clinic experts. We ask them real questions, tough and intimate health questions, and we get real answers, all originally recorded live. Hi there. Thanks for joining us. You're listening to the Health Essentials Podcast brought to you by Cleveland Clinic. My name is Cassandra Holloway, and I'll be your host for this episode. Today, we're broadcasting virtually as we are practicing social distancing during the coronavirus pandemic. We're joined virtually by neurologist Dr. Pravin George. Dr. George, thank you for taking the time out of your day to be here and speak with us. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So as we learn more about coronavirus, we're seeing the different effects that the virus can have on a person even after they've recovered from the illness. So today we're gonna to be talking with Dr. George about the neurological effects that COVID-19 can have on someone. Before we dive into this episode's topic, we wanna to first remind our listeners that this is for informational purposes only and does not replace your own physician's advice. So Dr. George, I first wanna start off by asking you how you're doing during this pandemic and in this crazy time. And if you'll tell us a little bit about your practice at Cleveland Clinic and the type of patients you see. Of course, um, yeah, so as you can imagine uh, during this pandemic, it's been very busy in certain ways in the hospital. Uh, I practice as a neurocritical care physician. So that means that I take care of mainly of patients that have uh, brain diseases, but uh, that cause them to go to the ICU. So um, the main population that I saw prior to COVID here uh, were patients that had a whole bunch of strokes, uh, that had um, uh, bleeds in their brain, that had uncontrollable epilepsy. Those would be the major brunt of the patients that I would see. Um, since COVID, a lot of those patients uh, started to uh, peter out from our population just because uh, patients stopped coming into the hospital uh, as a result of having uh, concerns of COVID and, and things like that. Uh, that's another thing that um, you know uh, has been brought up in the uh, literature as well as the media. But um, one of the things that uh, we've seen is a lot of um, issues with COVID uh, within the hospital population. Sure. So I'm just going to launch right into the, the million dollar question here that I think yeah. as we learn more about the virus and, and we see all of these uh, different symptoms and conditions that it can cause. But I think it's, it's interesting because we know that COVID-19 is a respiratory illness. So ultimately, how does a respiratory virus cause damage to our brain and nervous system? That's, that's a very good question. So uh, this coronavirus, it really enters the body. And this is what we're starting to understand more and more is that it enters the body through the respiratory system. But what starts to happen is, is as it enters, uh, it starts to cause more of a systemic uh, problem for us. Um, there are several different ways that coronavirus can actually uh, affect the brain. The first way is that it can uh, enter the body, it can cause this very bad respiratory illness. And in causing a bad respiratory illness, what starts to happen is, is that your body stops being able to take in as much oxygen. Your brain is very, very dependent upon oxygen, as you can imagine. Uh, more than 80% um, of the blood that you actually pump from your heart that's oxygenated goes to your brain. And it's very important uh, that it gets all of that oxygen because it needs oxygen second to second. 
what starts to happen in a lot of these coronavirus patients that have very bad respiratory disease is that that amount of oxygen starts to drop that goes to their brain. And if that happens for long enough, you can start to have what's called hypoxic ischemic injury to your brain, which means that a lot of the brain tissue that normally is responsible for getting a lot of the oxygen and for activities, for you to remember things, for you to uh, be cognitively aware, all of those brain tissue uh, starts to get uh, affected by this low levels of oxygen. And as that continues to happen, then you start to have uh, longer lasting effects. Um, we're, we're starting to realize is one of the first uh, feelings of this is a delirium uh, where you're not uh, fully aware of what's going on and you start to act in an abnormal way. So I read a little bit about, about these neurological conditions. You mentioned delirium was one of them. Um, what, other, what other examples are there? Are there like severe cases of it? Is, is delirium a severe case? Are there more mild symptoms? Kind of walk us through what specific conditions besides delirium that you're seeing. So uh, delirium is one of the first uh, manifestations that we're seeing from this hypoxic uh, damage, this hypoxic ischemic damage. Um, just recently, a study was done on some of the patients that had actually passed away from COVID-19, and they looked at their brain just to get a feeling as to what was happening to these patients. And they saw evidence all throughout of this hy hypoxic ischemic damage uh, throughout. Um, so that is very concerning because a lot of these patients were not starting to wake up and a lot of these patients started to have uh, worsening and worsening damage to their brain. So depending on how severe the illness is, um, you, you can have a differing amount of, um, of damage as well as symptoms from that damage. Um, COVID-19 then also has this other ability to attack your brain uh, cells directly as well. So um, the first way that I was mentioning was this uh, hypoxic ischemic damage where the lungs don't produce enough uh, uh, oxygen towards the body just because it's being affected by the virus. But then what happens is, is you can actually start to attack the brain, uh, the, the, the um, sorry, the coronavirus can actually start to attack the brain in itself. And what it does is, is that um, the, uh, that same ACE receptor that's responsible for the coronavirus attaching to the lung tissue is actually expressed on several areas of the brain. And uh, those areas deal with uh, auto-regulation of your blood pressure and auto-regulation of your respiratory drive and your alertness centers and things like that. And when um, the coronavirus starts to attack those areas, um, it's starting to be theorized that those could be uh, in relation to um, uh, uh, why the coronavirus is actually causing more delirium and, and uh, potentially coma in some of these patients. The other thing that coronavirus also seems to do is cause a systemic inflammation. And this is seen several days and weeks out uh, into the disease process. And uh, this, these are in that uh, severe case uh, patient population. And what starts to happen is this inflammation takes over all throughout the body and it causes you to become very, very uh, hypercoagulable, which means that you start to clot in all of your organs. Um, we saw that originally in the lung. Uh, so a lot of people had a pulmonary embolism. We saw that in the kidneys and people would start to uh, lose function of their kidneys. 
start to, uh, we started to see this in the brain as well. And so people started to have strokes. Um, those strokes came in both varieties in which pa uh, patients would come in and they would have uh, what we would call microthrombosis, so little clots all throughout the brain. And this would cause uh, a big uh, f function of delirium. And then we would see patients that would have microclots that would turn into bleeds. So then they would have bleeding inside the brain as well. So you'd see both bleeding and clotting in, this, uh, in the brain at the same time. So this is uh, why neurologists and especially neurointensivists were getting very um, involved in the management of these patients because we started to see these neurological complications. Um, the other uh, manifestation, and we saw this at the Cleveland Clinic, um, was that uh, some of our patients really started to have seizures as a result of this. And we started to recognize that a lot of this was probably due to a direct inflammatory process that was happening because of the COVID-19 uh, uh, disease process in itself. Yeah, absolutely. So since the beginning of, of this pandemic, it's really been, you know, brought to everyone's attention that those most at risk are those with, you know, the underlying chronic medical conditions. Are, are you in your practice seeing that a lot of these patients who are experiencing these neurological effects, the seizures, the delirium, the, the brain inflammation, are you seeing that a lot of them have underlying conditions? Is it is it just the older patients? Is it just the younger patients? Kind of walk us through kind of who's most at risk for this. Absolutely. So um, the patients that are at risk for more severe disease, for, uh, for good or for bad, um, it seems to be that uh, the, the majority of the patients having this severe disease are in the older population. Um, it's in the patient population that has more medical comorbidities. Those two, uh, the two medical comorbidities that seem to be uh, playing uh, the biggest role in this uh, seem to be obesity um, and uh, some kind of uh, prior respiratory illness. Uh, so if you have one of those two issues, uh, then you have a higher chance of having this severe disease. Um, but uh, obesity, for whatever reason, seems to be a very big player into this. And it seems to be that uh, there is also this ACE2 receptor on a lot of the fat tissue in your body. And it could be that uh, uh, the... Um, uh, the coronavirus is actually starting to cause some inflammation uh, as a result of that as well, causing more systemic inflammation. That's still being looked at uh, as one of the primary uh, players in the, uh, in the severe COVID-19 population. But um, uh, out of those patients that are starting to pass away from this disease, it seems to be that uh, we're, we're really seeing it uh, in, the, in the elderly population. Uh, and and uh, those with more risk. And so the thing is, is that once you start to fall into that more severe population, those are the, also the patients that are also starting to have more of these other uh, manifestations, whether that be delirium or strokes or seizures. Um, those are the patients that we're really starting to see uh, all of these complications. In. Sure. So I want to pick your brain about a topic that that we keep seeing coming up in the news and in, in, on websites about these um, quote coronavirus long haulers. You know the people who have have had the virus and they've recovered from it, and they're still experiencing symptoms. You know, two three months after the fact, a lot of them are just saying that they're they're very fatigued. They're constantly worn down. They're very tired. Um, they have muscle pain. Is this something that your practice sees? Kind of that neurological. Um, 
manifestation of like the long-term symptoms? Is that something that you're involved with at all? So that's that's a great question. Um, we, we've seen a lot of long-term uh, issues with the coronavirus. Um, a lot of it has to uh, it stems from um, long-term effects of any kind of illness. So it, it, let's say you were to break a bone, um, that arm doesn't feel as good as it did prior, and you will have long-lasting effects from that. When you take a systemic virus, uh, something like the coronavirus that affects the lungs, then it starts to affect the heart and the kidneys and the brain itself. Uh, you start to see uh, systemic effects of such things, and the recovery from something like that in some patients, especially with those with uh, severe disease, it'll last for a longer time. Uh, now, uh, some of these patients, and we're starting to see this more and more often, um, the ones that have this hypoxic ischemic damage or hypoxic ischemic injury in the brain, um, you're going to see very long-lasting effects. Just because the um, brain effects, some of those are irreversible, and some of those uh, actually take a long time for the brain to actually rewire itself. The brain does and it has the innate ability to rewire itself, which is one of the primary reasons why so many people do well after a stroke or a bleed or something like that. But when a patient has uh, something like the coronavirus and it's a slow um, deterioration of brain tissue, it takes a longer time sometimes for the brain to get better from something like that. It can take weeks, months, uh, potentially even years. We're not sure yet as to that, but we're still following up on some of those patients. I imagine it's just, it's also so frustrating and scary for these patients who you know have recovered and they're still experiencing these symptoms it's got to be emotionally and mentally taxing as well uh, uh, absolutely i mean a lot of the patients that we've seen um are suffering from that uh, hyper and hypoactive delirium and uh you know we we've had several patients here with the uh, hyperactive delirium component which is really you start to hear uh, auditory hallucinations you can actually see visual hallucinations, those kind of things. And you can imagine how um, terrifying that can be at, at some point and realizing that you're actually um, uh, having manifestations of this disease. Um, the hypoactive component is also kind of um, a, it, it's, it's a harder to treat one uh, because we don't have any really good medications for it at all. Um, I mean, at least with the hyperactive, sometimes we can give a couple of medications that can help out with some of those uh, manifestations. But the hypoactive, uh, we start to see patients withdraw themselves, and um, that can be very, very long-lasting. And uh, these patients start to really fall out from our community. They they don't want to talk anymore. They don't. Uh, uh, they are unable to talk uh, at some points. And so the, those patients, um, we really have to follow up on them to make sure that you know we we give them all of the supports that they need to come back into it. Absolutely. I love that kind of call to action with support. So making sure that yeah. your physician is involved in your care, making sure um, your patients have the resources that, that they need, you know, if it's speaking to someone, if it's therapy, um, just making sure, you know, you, you have that relationship and support system for this as if the pandemic wasn't, you know, stressful enough with the scary virus <laughs> right. and, you know, all the other negative stuff that comes along with it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it, the scary thing that we're seeing is that um, in any uh, particular population of COVID patients, uh, especially in the severe patient population, we're starting to see that um, this uh, the 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 numbers um, of uh, people with delirium, whether it be hypo active or hyperactive is nearing that 65 to 75 percent of patients. So, you know, two out of three almost with this severe disease are actually having this kind of thing. 
Yeah, absolutely. Worth, worth mentioning, worth getting this information out there for sure. So I want to talk a little bit about the, the symptom that I think has been around since the beginning of this, um, you know, the new loss of taste or loss of smell symptom that we've kind of heard about. I think it's really interesting. Um, do we know what causes that or why? I, is there some sort of neurological link in there somewhere? So that that's a that's a great question. Um, people have uh, seen this ever since the virus was uh, back in China, mainly, and it was reported, I think, uh, first in uh, neurological papers back from uh, uh, its days in Wuhan. But um, basically, what starts to happen is is as the coronavirus enters through the respiratory tract, um, it does affect the lungs when it gets down there, but there's some concern that the ACE2 receptors that uh, are right there in the nasal area, right in the nasopharyngeal area, th that's kind of the area where we test with those swabs. Um, there, there are a lot of neuro neural tissue there and brain tissue that's right there. Uh, and the, that's what's responsible for a lot of your smell and your taste uh, ability. What can happen is, is that um, you have those ACE2 receptors right there on some of those brain cells. And there's some concern that um, the coronavirus enters through that uh, mechanism. It enters some of those cells and it potentially can either cause inflammation to those cells right there in the uh, in the brain tissue. And once that inflammation starts to happen, you start to lose a sense of smell, you start to lose that sense of taste. And then um, as that goes into your brain stem, it can cause some of those uh, neurological effects of uh, COVID-19. So that, that's one of the first uh, uh, things that we've started to realize about it. And, and uh, because so many patients have had this uh, anosmia and, and agusia, the inability to smell and the inability to taste uh, that got added to our list of um, primary symptoms of COVID-19. So the last thing I want to talk to you about here, Dr. George, is prevention. Uh, what can listeners do to help protect themselves from getting COVID-19 first and foremost, which can ultimately, you know, turn into these negative neurological issues? Uh, what parting advice do you have for our listeners? Right. So the, the biggest thing, um, and, and we've seen this time and time again, um, the, the best way to really prevent yourself from getting it are, is frequent hand washing. I mean, that, uh, because it lives on surfaces. So if somebody sneezes on a surface or coughs on a surface or talks by a surface and some of their droplets get on that surface and you touch that, uh, you now have it on your hands. Uh, so frequent hand washing is similar to when the flu is out. That's one big way. Um, the other thing is, is staying away, uh, you know, that six foot distance from pay, uh, other people um, because uh, prior to getting it and the whole thing about COVID-19 is that it takes about six or seven days to actually start to recognize any type of symptoms. So people could be, you know, out at your barbecue, they could be having fun, doing whatever. Uh, they may have been exposed to somebody. Um, all of a sudden you could... Um, be exposed to somebody that is pre-symptomatic. Um, so basically uh, staying, you know, more than six feet away is generally a, a good um, uh, thought as of, uh, you know, the time of this, uh, you know, whole uh, pandemic is going on because it's actively spreading. Um, staying more than six feet away does ensure that, you know, when they're talking to you, when um, they're coughing or sneezing and th things like that, um, all of those droplets don't to you because you're you're far enough away, and that's that's where that six feet uh, comes from. 
then um, the whole thing about wearing a mask is, is gonna be very important. The reason for mask wearing is really just to cover yourself from spreading those virus particles. And that, that lets you spread it less than six feet, obviously. So when you're, uh, when you're starting, to, because people don't wanna be away from, or people can't be away from everybody six feet all the time. I mean, we're very densely populated, as you can imagine. So walking by people, walking through a city, walking through a building, uh, especially when you're indoors. I mean, um, the ability to just kind of aerosolize some of these particles if you're pre-symptomatic uh, is very, very high. And so what you would want to do is you'd want to wear a covering just to make sure that you're not spreading it out. Uh, to other people. Um, kind of getting the disease uh, through a mask, I mean, is, is uh, also uh, found to be a little bit uh, reduced from that as well. So you can, you, depending on the type of mask and things like that, you can reduce your risk as well of getting it if somebody else uh, releases their droplets by wearing a mask in some ways as well. So those are, those are helpful. Um, if you're in the healthcare environment, you work in healthcare or something like that, um, I mean, depending on the type of environment that you work with, uh, if you're working around patients constantly, uh, or if you're working in high-risk units, um, I mean, you, you would have to wear uh, different types of uh, protective equipment. And we call that PPE. But I mean, depending on the type of uh, environment that you're working in, uh, you would want to upgrade some of that equipment. Uh, and, you know, those are all up to the managers in those areas because that, that's, that's really, um, I mean, uh, the most looked at uh, type of thing. Um, as of right now, um, there are ongoing studies looking at some of uh, what we should be wearing and how we should be wearing what we're wearing. Um, but the thing is, is that, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, debate out there uh, because uh, the, the uh, solid data is not out there yet. So once that is there, um, I think uh, we'll start to have a lot of this um, debate kind of end. But I, I think um, as far as it goes, uh, right now we have seen, and it's been pretty solid in the evidence showing that um, social distancing, so keeping at least six feet apart from everybody and, and wearing masks seems to be the best way to really kind of um, uh, prevent uh, spread of this. Sure, absolutely. It's kind of like the golden rules of the pandemic now, you know, yeah, your no, absolutely. Yes, social distance, don't touch your face, wash your hands. So, but I think it, it always bears repeating um, right. just because, you know, it's, it's our listeners are out there. We gotta, we gotta make sure that everyone's together in this for sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, children as, uh, as well. Um, it, it, it seems like, uh, um, people are looking into how um, we can prevent ourselves from touching our faces while you, you bring this up. Um, the, one of the things that a lot of people are noticing is that when they are wearing a mask, um, they're drawn to touching their face and they're drawn to kind of adjusting their mask a lot. Um, it's been kind of a, uh, a social faux pas to do things like that uh, and to not do that. Um, so we have to try and work on that as well. Uh, some people have found that wearing a face shield kind of helps a little bit just because it blocks you from being able to touch your face. Um, so that may be uh, a benefit uh, to the community as well uh, on top of wearing masks. Um, it, it seems to help in that. Um, I think uh, going out from here, um, one, a couple of the things that we really need to do is follow up some of these patients uh, also. So some of the people that have uh, COVID-19, um, uh, you know, especially with a severe disease um, and, and, and some of these patients that have uh, had a lot of the neurological complications, just looking into um, how they're doing, um, following them up, making sure that we have clinics for them so that we can follow them up and 
neurological clinics. I think that's going to be very, very important. Um, we're, we're, we at the Cleveland Clinic are setting those type of things up uh, as well to make sure uh, they're not lost to follow up. Absolutely. Again, yeah, just making sure that the patients have the resources, the relationship is there, and and people are getting the care they need for sure to help yeah. them through this crazy, crazy time. But yeah. So, uh, Dr. George, I want to give our listeners some parting advice, especially those who have you know, previous or prior neurological conditions such as MS or Parkinson's, or maybe they're already taking, you know, immunosuppressant medications. What advice do you have for them in this time of COVID-19 and still continuing to take, you know, their medications and seeing their provider? What advice would you give to them? I think um, the most important thing to take back uh, regarding this whole uh, uh, thing, even in the setting of this huge pandemic, is that it is very, very important to continue your medical care. If you have a stroke or if you're having a stroke and you're having stroke-like symptoms, um, don't avoid coming to the hospital. It's very, very important to get care. in the hospital, uh, like I said, we, we do still take care of both, um, you know, strokes as well as COVID at the same time. Uh, in, in our patient population, we've seen brain tumor patients come in with, uh, with COVID uh, and without COVID and we're taking care of them. Uh, you know, we, we're taking care of the patients that have COVID uh, and a brain tumor as that. As that. And so we're t- treating them with both of the medications that, that can potentially help both. Um, it's, it's, uh, something that's a new reality for us. And so that's why we're taking it to our patients and we're able to, um, offer them the care between, uh, both, uh, type at the same time. Um, it's very important, you know, as far as, you know, if you have any movement disorders, I mean, MS, uh, we actually just did a recent study uh, or there, well, there, there was a study that was, uh, just recently done showing that, uh, MS, uh, patients were actually, not at a higher risk of uh, um, developing further severe disease from COVID-19 um, as a result of having uh, MS or being on their MS medications. These are all reassuring things, especially for our neuro population. Um, brain tumor patients, uh, they're, they're doing fine with or without the, without the um, uh, disease process. And if you have COVID-19 and you have uh, a brain tumor, we're able to, you know, kind of go forward with your therapy for both the brain tumors uh, and all the immunosuppression that comes along with it, as well as treating you for the COVID-19 type of things. But yeah, no, those are, are those are the major things. I mean, uh, obviously, if you have any kind of uh, stroke-like symptoms and it's related to COVID, uh, we kind of uh, lump you into the severe COVID potential population and we start treating you with the medications that we know are more uh, uh, therapeutic for the severe disease. All right, Dr. George, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to speak with us. You've offered so so many great, you know, advice and insight onto this this neurological conditions um, that we're seeing with COVID-19. So thank you for taking the time to speak with us. Definitely. Thank you for having me. This has been a great experience. For the latest news about COVID-19, visit clevelandclinic.org slash coronavirus. If you want to listen to more Health Essentials podcasts featuring experts at Cleveland Clinic, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from or visit clevelandclinic.org slash HE podcasts. Don't forget, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Cleveland Clinic, all one word, to stay up to date on the latest news and information about coronavirus, as well as your own health and wellness. Thanks for listening and stay safe. This concludes this Cleveland Clinic Health Essentials podcast. Thank you for listening. Join us again soon.